The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about China-Democratic Republic of Congo relations. Now, this was a very important topic last week when Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was on his five-nation week-long tour of Africa. Already, he I mean, he, this guy, is he's a travel mania right now because he got back, uh, and less than 48 hours later, from coming back from Africa, he was back on the road in ASEAN here in my neighborhood in Southeast Asia. But while he was in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Kinshasa, uh, he made a number of announcements that in many ways to me, when we look back at the whole trip, stand out as one of the most important, if not the most important stops on his 2021 visit. So let me just run through some of the things that they got accomplished during this, again, a, a brief 24-hour layover in Kinshasa. One of the announcements was the fact that China canceled the DRC's interest-free loans that matured in 2020. Those were worth about $28 million. Now, while that sounds magnanimous, consider the fact that those grants represent less than 5% of China's loan portfolio in the DR Congo. And also the Chinese have been canceling these interest-free loans and these grants quite a bit. So it's not that exceptional. And when you put it into the bigger picture, since 2008, 2009, the Chinese have extended about $2.4 billion in loans, mostly in the power, transportation, and mining sectors. That's, of course, data from the China-Africa Research Initiative. So that's the bigger context there. But the highlight of the trip and of all the announcements that they did during the talks with President Felix Chesikedi and Foreign Minister Maritumba Nzeza was the inclusion of the Democratic Republic of Congo as the 45th African country to join the Belt and Road. Now, that's a pretty big announcement, and Botswana became the 46th country in Africa to be part of the BRI, and there was a lot of attention given uh, to that announcement. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Oh, and one more thing. This was my favorite part. China will also pay to refurbish the Congolese Foreign Ministry building in Kinshasa. So our good friend Joshua Meservi over at the Heritage Foundation who tracks Chinese infrastructure and government building diplomacy will have one more building to add to his list. Also, don't forget that China's already paying to build a massive new arts and cultural center in downtown Kinshasa. This thing is just huge at 36,000 square meters. And uh, so, so lots of building going on in, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, when we look back at the relationship right now, and especially in the trade aspect of it all, you would think that the COVID-19 pandemic would have had an impact on trade, but it actually hasn't. The latest data that we have is in the first half of 2020, bilateral trade between the China and DRC actually went up 8%. And it's really a testament to the fact that the DRC is becoming much more important to the Chinese. And there's really one word in my view that explains why, and it is cobalt. Now, cobalt is a key ingredient in the lithium-ion batteries that are used in electric vehicles and other electronics, and the DRC is home to somewhere around 60 to 70% 
of the world's cobalt reserves. Last November, consider this, China's National Food and Strategic Reserves Administration announced that it would buy 2,000 tons of cobalt to begin stockpiling the strategic mineral. And then just this week alone, we got an update on that in Reuters, who reported that the Chinese may now be moving to increase that stockpile to 5,000 tons. So really, more than doubling of that stockpile, that has forced the price of cobalt up. And I got to tell you, almost every month, but maybe every few weeks now, there's been another new announcement about a Chinese cobalt mining deal in the DRC. And what's interesting is that the Chinese are solidifying their dominance up and down the cobalt supply chain, from the mining to the shipping to the processing back in China. And I have to be honest with you, Kobus, given how important this particular commodity is, I mean, it's really critical for all the next generation transportation technologies, all those Teslas that are on the road and all those electric vehicles and so many of the electronics that we use require cobalt and tantalum and some of the strategic minerals coming out of the DRC. I have to be honest with you that I'm surprised that the U.S. and Europe aren't moving faster to get into this market. It's so important that it just can't be overstated. And think about it this way in the geopolitical terms here. One theory that's been circulating is that China is really trying to build up this stockpile of cobalt such to, to such an extent that the U.S. and Europe simply can't compete. Now, if the U.S. cuts off supplies of semiconductors to China, as it's been threatening to do, then the Chinese could retaliate with cobalt, for example. That would then cripple big parts of the electric vehicle industry in the U.S. and Europe. So I know, Kobus, that African governments have said repeatedly that they don't want to be in the middle of another great power struggle, but it really seems that the DRC is once again heading in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, the DRC was, you know, in, in, in that time of the year, was, was at the center of, of kind of Cold War, you know, Soviet-US wranglings um, decades ago. Um, I think, you know, I agree with you that that this is really, the stockpiling is really a notable thing. And we, we already saw, um, you know, a few years ago, when China had a spat with Japan, that it was willing to use um, supplies of rare earth minerals, um, cutting them off from, from Japanese industry, that they were willing to kind of weaponize these kind of these kind of stockpiles before um so it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out i agree with you that i think that that western players should should kind of pay a lot of attention to this um we, we saw uh, elon musk a while ago announced that they're that they're working on a cobalt free battery uh for for future kind of teslas but you know we haven't seen any of those kind of rolling out yet you know um and and it'll be interesting to see you know whether there's a, a kind of a race you, you know a race for a cobalt fee battery kind of heating up on both sides, and then what kind of effect that will have on the DRC in the long run. Well, we wanted to get some perspective on China-DRC relations with so much that's going on. So we we dug into the Rolodex and we, we just called up our old friend, Johanna Maun, who's an independent researcher and member of the Stockholm Observatory for Global China. A longtime faithful listeners of the show will remember Johanna back on the show eight, nine years ago, talking to us about China-DRC relations. Back then, you know, we had Johanna talking about the research that she's done uh, in Kinshasa and in the eastern city of Lumumba. And uh, we're just so happy to have you back on the show again, Johanna. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning to join us from Stockholm. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be back. Well, it's great. And you recently published an essay on the South African Institute of International Affairs website, China Powered African Agency and Its Limits, the Case of the DRC 
2007 to 2019. The timing of that is excellent because it coincides, obviously, with all the events that have been going on with Wang Yi and what we talked about with Cobalt. So let's just kind of start our discussion. There's a lot going on. It's becoming a much more strategically important country to, to China, both because of its location and its minerals, and also the fact that relations between the Chesakati government and the United States appear to be improving now that former President Joseph Kabila is no longer in power. Talk to us about where we are right now in this relationship and why it, it's becoming more important to the Chinese. As I wrote in the paper, it's, it is a changed relationship in the sense that the Chinese now have a very low profile diplomatically. It's not big, these mega deals that were discussed in the past. Um, I mean, one of them, Sikumin, actually did materialize. Other mega deals that were discussed have not materialized. It's not your big rhetoric. It's a very low profile diplomatically, but it's a strong interest. As you say, I mean, this, the China's strategic interests in the DRC are still strong. I don't know to what extent, you know, it has increased. I would say it's been very strong uh, throughout, um, ever since, you know, the elections in 2006. But, yeah, I think you're right that, um, you know, that Congo is very strategically important and the way uh, China is engaging in the mineral sector really has changed in the sense that all those acquisitions that you talk about um, in the mining sector are really now acquisitions that you get into um, joint ventures with other actors rather than, you know, the kind of direct investments of the past. I mean, that th that was more... That's, it's very complicated to do these kinds of investment. So now we're seeing a Chinese approach that's focused on acquiring and, you know, securing access to minerals. But I also wanted to stress that, you know, China has taken up a more active role as a force for stability. I mean, the DRC, I think, in general, is an important country for the region. DRC has to be stable. I think the entire international community knows this. If the DRC becomes even more unstable, I wouldn't say it's stable today, but if it becomes even more unstable, the international community is going to have even more issues to deal with in terms of humanitarian crisis, disasters and, and instability, I mean, in terms of conflict. So the international community is very well aware of, of the DRC's importance in terms of this. And for China, who wants to become a more responsible international actor, I think China is already now an important actor and that has really evolved over the past decade. And this is now also a lens through which you have to view the relation. It's not just minerals, but it's also um, China's role like in the UN, in the UN Security Council. It's called for, you know, for the international community to support the Congolese government. In the recent visit by the Chinese foreign minister, you also saw that uh, China is um, supportive of the Congolese ambition to have the weapons embargo lifted and to in the supporting of also the, the transition in terms of MUNUSCO, the, the stabilization force to gradually pull back. So it's a, I think it's a two-pronged kind of ambition. It's the diplomatic approach where China wants to be seen as a responsible actor and have a central role. And it's also the strategic mineral you know, acquisitions that, that are still ongoing, even though the face of that has kind of changed from direct investments to acquisitions. So in, in the paper, you refer to China-powered agency um, in the DRC. What, what do you mean by China-powered agency? China-powered agency, I, I use that 
to clarify that, that I mean the kind of agency and, and you were referring earlier to the Cold War and the kind of strategies that the Congolese were using back then. And I think that was powered or you would say Cold War powered agency maybe rivalry powered and in in the sense that China and that Congo and the Congolese government has been able to draw on China to have increased leverage with other other actors such as I mean Western actors the IMF and the World Bank and also other donors so that is the kind of agency that would that China would enable you would say that's what I call the China powered agency it's just a way to try to express when China's strategic interests enabled the Congolese government to maneuver in relation to other external actors you talked about the fact that one of the topics of discussion between the two foreign ministers in Kinshasa was the lifting of the arms embargo now that arms embargo has been in place uh, since about 2003 if i'm correct and and that really mirrors so much of the conflict in that time that's been in in the in the DRC. What is the incentive for the Chinese to want to lift the embargo? Do they want to sell weapons to the Congolese? Do they think this is something that will help the Congolese? And is it the right thing to do, in your opinion, as someone who's been going there for the past 10, 15 years? Because of the non-interference policy, what China does and continues to do is to show that they support the incumbent, you know, that they support the incumbent regime, the government and the government's aspirations. And I think I see this as, as part of that lens, you know. In, in the paper, you point out that that we, that at present, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a relatively... Uh, relatively smaller um, presence of the Chinese state, and rather China has been represented frequently by by Chinese companies. Um, you know, fr- frequently through mergers and acquisitions. Um, like, h- how have you seen the the engagement of China um, in the DRC change? You know, kind of like over the last two decades. This is a very interesting case. I think of how one can use an African case to really mirror what China is doing globally. I think it's, it's fascinating to see that, you know, China's the early days of going out, China was really bullish is the word I use in the paper because you were really optimistic when it go out and, you know, uh, secure new markets and this is the way we're going to learn and this is exactly what happened in the DRC. Now we initiated a big deal um, that would implicate our own companies, our own banks, we would invest, we would create strong links. But this, of course, turned out to be very complicated um, with, of course, what all other actors in the DRC know. The Chinese also came to find out that there is complicated politically. It's fraught with a lot of political risk. And you don't know the environment can be unpredictable. And so I think Congo, I would say, was a really early case where the Chinese strategy to become more careful with risk changed because of this. I mean, I would see this already from 2010, 2011 onwards, China changed into, you know, it has been more mergers and acquisitions rather than direct investments. It's been very cautious with lending. Um, I mean, even the big uh, deal in the DRC, Sikomin, had their financing pulled back from China Exim Bank because China Exim Bank was not sure that, that, you know, they wanted more security. I mean, this is the broader trend that we see now, and you, you have been discussing this with, with multiple guests on the show that China's lending is dropping. So, But in the DRC, we saw this 
happen earlier because of the risks. I think this is a kind of a, an environment where, which is so such high risk that China's reduced appetite for risk will show very early on. So that is what we've seen in terms of investments, but also in terms of China's role as a you know ambition to be a responsible international actor mirrors also very interestingly in the DRC because of it turned out that the idea to lend at commercial terms uh, and not deal with the IMF on this, do it on your own, as it were, with Sikomin and the early days, 2007 until 2009-10, it did not work out very well with it couldn't combine very well with the with the ambition to be a responsible international actor because, of course, everybody else got angry. All the Western donors and the IMF, this this idea of extending loans, very expensive loans at commercial terms. I mean, expensive ter- expensive loans as compared to concessional loans that did not work very well. That wasn't appreciated at all by the IMF, and uh, so that means China had was indeed challenging the IMF, and. I think is also an, a point where this is a dissonance in Chinese foreign policy making that was brought forward. It became apparent that we have a dissonance here. This this has to be settled in order for China to be able to be uh, in the DRC and elsewhere a responsible international actor. And I also see. I also think this is part of the reason why these big loans which cannot in any way be seen as concessional or be be seen as um, low cost. That's why we see less of them now, because China simply cannot do that. And also at the same time, take an active role in the IMF, for example. It's so interesting that when we look back at the trajectory of China-Africa relations over the past 20 years, how in so many ways, you're absolutely right that the Sikomins deal back in 2007, in so many ways set the tone. It was the original massive mega China-Africa deal. It was, what you wrote about this back in the day, was about $6.5 billion. They eventually scaled that back. Let's let's dive into the Sikumins a little bit, because I think there are some interesting lessons that we can draw out from that experience and see how they have either been applied to the current state or not. Because I oftentimes think of the Kenya Standard Gauge Railway in very similar terms to the Sikumins deal as just a boondoggle. Uh, but the Sikomins deal was La Sino Congole de Min, that is a mining deal. And the idea was that they would co-invest in a mine and then take the proceeds from that mine to repay the loan. Walk us through the basics of the Sikomins deal so we understand it. Yeah, it is, uh, well, the most well-known, I would say, of these resources for infrastructure loans, as you as it can be referred to. I think of it as a financing arrangement, you know, where... Congo got access to much more financing than it would uh, through uh, multilateral lenders and through the the you know the open market by mortgaging or um, using as collateral uh, mining projects. So it was several mining concessions in eastern DRC and southern eastern uh, DRC that was used as collateral. So a joint venture was formed between Jekamin, which is the state-owned, uh, one of the state-owned mining companies in the DRC, and two Chinese companies. And they would then form a company, they would develop the mine and exploit it, and then using the profits, they would pay back this big loan that was to be extended. And there was a credit line that was announced. So it wasn't the way it's often understood is that, you know, this was now 
$6 billion of debt or $9 billion of debt being dispersed. It was a credit pledge. But ahead of each disbursement, of course, the Chinese financiers would then assess whether this was feasible to pay out loans under this. So the loans were to be used to finance public goods uh, type infrastructure, so roads and hospitals. And Loans were also to be uh, to be used to finance the development of the mine. Um, so this is a very unusual setup. It's very unusual amounts of money for the DRC. I mean, the the GDP uh, of the DRC in the year that this deal was extended was not much higher. It was a bit higher, but it, it was you know in, that was the size of it. So it was enormous. And of course, because it was not on aid terms or what the IMF would call concessional, this generated uh, controversy. Which which lessons do you feel the Western actors like the IMF took from, from the Sikumin deal? Like, like how, how has that kind of affected their, or has it affected their, their kind of dealing with China and dealing with, with you know, kind of with, with the global South um, going forward? I think this is very interesting, the way this impacted on the IMF. My argument in my research, at least, but IMF has not challenged me on this or even come forward to comment on it. But my argument has been that the IMF actually had to adapt their landing, lending standards because the IMF has a debt sustainability framework. The way it looked uh, before 2009, it did not accommodate these kinds of Chinese loans. And which is why uh, this always became a controversy in countries where China would extend a big loan that was resource-backed, the IMF would object, it would become a political issue. And of course, because the IMF doesn't come with the kind of money that the Chinese did, at least at the time, uh, the IMF could not politically tell the countries to say, ah, guys, you're not allowed to use this financing that you badly need because we have our standards and we have our debt sustainability framework. So they had to, and this is my argument, they had to amend the debt sustainability framework so the reading, as after Sikumin, the reading in the debt sustainability framework was changed to, you know, that concessional lending should be uh, the preferred route. But if there are infrastructure needs, concessional or commercial loans, larger commercial, commercial loans can be considered. And what I think is that the IMF did this to retain their own political relevance, because if, if they otherwise they would make themselves politically irrelevant, if they were to challenge every Chinese deal that came through, it just wasn't going to work. So this this is, this is what they had to do to accommodate Chinese loans. However, I think this challenge to, to the IMF has become much lesser or I don't even know. I haven't heard of any big challenge to the IMF for these. I mean, as you have reported also and discussed in your previous shows that Chinese lending is decreasing. China is very uh, not at all interested in risk in that same um, way. And these, of course, big loans represent a big risk. I wouldn't say there's... Chinese challenge to the IMF anymore, as it was seen back in 27, 2007, 2008. In many ways, the, the Chinese and the IMF are actually working much closer together. So we just had an announcement this week that the Chinese have given a three-year debt repayment holiday to Angola, and that then that cleared the way for a $470 million IMF package that came in to the Angolans. There was a very similar story in Zambia as well, that the restructuring of some of the Chinese debt then opened the pathway for uh, talks with the IMF. So in many ways, the IMF and the Chinese are starting to work much more closely together on these debt issues. That was definitely not the case, though, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when you were writing about uh, Sikumins. I think in many ways, it was a different time in our history. The Chinese were brand new. No one knew what they were doing. But now, 
we know more about what the Chinese strategy and their methods in, in Africa. When you look at, at what's been going on in the DRC and then extrapolate that to other places and other parts of Africa, what similarities and differences do you see? First of all, at least in the DRC, it's clear that they have changed uh, approach diplomatically, that they are very uh, cautious, that, that diplomatically they have such a low profile, you even hardly, you cannot even see that the diplomats are there, you know, from what I understand in the, you know, in the interactions in Kinshasa, they keep a super low profile and they did not do this in the past. I mean, in, during the Sikomin controversy, I mean, this is 2007, 2008, 2009, they were really, the ambassador was super active. He was in the media, he was talking, he, I mean, I met him several times, he was explaining, he was defending, he was speaking, you know, in this excellent French and you don't see the Chinese diplomats doing that now. So I really see they have, they have shifted and I don't know to what extent, you know, this is something that you can see in an overall you know, note in terms of Chinese diplomats, but in the, in the DRC, this is definitely the case. They are more discreet. And also the fact that uh, they are, they have shifted to mergers and acquisitions. It's very clear shift. And this, of course, is because it's very complicated to do direct investments um, in the DRC. And I think this is the broader trend that Chinese companies are using to to invest through mergers and acquisitions as a way to learn. China, as I see it at least, has learned a lot. One often thinks, I mean, you're referring to this, you know, decade that has passed or 10 to 15 years uh, that have passed since the first meeting uh, forum on China-Africa cooperation. It is a very short time. In international politics, a decade is really nothing. But for China, this decade has meant an, an enormous change. And I think you've, one often fail, at least as a Western audience, fails to acknowledge this or fails to see that China isn't static. There's big changes going on. There's an intensive learning curve. And that's why I, I wanted to highlight, take a broader, as, as in this paper, I wanted to you know, to put the starting point for the analysis at um, before 2010, just to show how quick this change has been and how, you know, how much this implies learning, how much this means adjusting. And also in terms of the the, the fact that now China is more and more um, a responsible intern, I mean, really acting actively in the DRC. I mean, they are diplomatically with a low profile, but they have a strong presence and are very committed to the regional dimension um, through the special envoy to the Great Lakes region, SIA. And also that they are, you know, in the UN Security Council has been supporting uh, the Congolese in their endeavors. So I think, I don't, I'm not sure that all of this is, is things they learned in Congo. Maybe it's, you know, what, what happens elsewhere that is reflected in Congo. But in any case, looking at the DRC case study, all of this is showcased, which I think is really interesting. So this with with um, Wang Yi's recent visit, um, the the DRC also joined the the Belt and Road Initiative, and you know this is an interesting moment because because on the one hand we're seeing you know sharp kind of ratcheting back of Chinese lending, um, particularly infrastructure lending, um, but at the same time there's a lot of kind of rhetoric being put behind the BR, the BRI, including the the new white paper on international development that that the Chinese government put out recently. Um, so how do you see See, you know, kind of as, as a country like 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 the DRC joins the BRI, like what is in the BRI for them at the moment, and and how how do, do you see this kind of like Africa China BRI, you know, kind of expansion? How 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 do you see it shifting in the future? 
Well, I don't know. My my thinking around the BRI for Africa has been that it really doesn't represent anything really new. It is integrating what was happening under the Forum on Africa Cooperation umbrella, so the FOCAC umbrella, into an Africa context. Because as we see, you know, loans and investment and earnings of Chinese uh, construction companies, all of that increased until 2013. This is when the BRI was launched. Um, but then it peaked. It's not like it's going down. But it's peaked. So there's no real BRI effect on Africa. And I think now 45 countries uh, are, have signed Memorandum of Understanding for the BRI. I don't necessarily see, see that it's going to change. I think of it as a foreign policy vision. It's a way to gather, you know, all Chinese global engagement under one umbrella. And it's another umbrella than FOCAC. But I think for the DRC... I don't necessarily see this changing anything. Uh, I, I don't see that this is now going to offer, uh, you know, to help the DRC get more loans or big deals or anything like that. It's more to say that you're strategically important to us. And as you're saying um, earlier on, that, of course, the fact that, that the Chinese foreign minister comes to the DRC really goes to show how strategically important the DRC is for China. And and bringing the DRC into the, the, the BRI is part of that. But, I mean, as we have seen also, I mean, Kenya has had um, the standard gauge railway financed under the, the, the Belt and Road Initiative. But for the third tranche of that, China hasn't been wanting to extend um, loans because of, you know, there were certain feasibility studies and certain commercial uh, viability aspect that China just didn't find strong enough. And China thinks, I mean, of course, Kenya is strategically important for China, but China is going to be very cautious in terms of extending loans. And I think it's going to be the same for the DRC. So strategic importance, but not necessarily big change as part of the BRI um, joining. As somebody who's followed China-DRC relations from the early days in, in the mid-2000s, uh, help us understand where you think this is actually going you know, based on where they've been, based on what we know with the BRI and the announcements that Wang Yi, you know, did, and also, again, taking into account the strategic importance of cobalt and tantalum and Colton and those minerals, where do you see this relationship going in the next few years? That's the million-dollar question, huh? But I would think that this direction it's going now is pretty stable. I was writing in the paper that I see China as a stable partner for the Congolese government. It's a, it's a low-profile partner, and it's one that's going to favor locally-owned you know, solutions. It's not going to put an external pressure into uh, that or the other direction, as other actors actually do in the DRC. Um, but, um, but so that China is going to remain that partner, very stable partner. Um, and China is also going, I think, increasingly to take up uh, a role in terms of the UN and the UN's dealings. Um, and as uh, you know, and I was mentioning earlier, the special envoy for the Great Lakes region for the UN. That also, that appointment also goes to show that this is really important for China. So China is going to be that long term, stable but discreet partner that's going to invest through. I think increasingly mergers and acquisitions, and I really, and I, I, I agree fully with what you were saying. You know, what what you ha highlighting all these cobalt deals. This is a long term strategic interest. What it what it will not mean. Uh, the relationship for the years to come is big uh, commercial loans. That I think, given also the trend that Chinese over overseas lending is decreasing rapidly, radically overall. 
you know, I think we can safely say that this is not going to be, I mean, I, I, I can be proven wrong, but I would be surprised if there would be big Chinese loans extended uh, on commercial loans on terms to the DRC in the years to come. That is not the way this partnership is going. And I mean, China still has um, a small aid portfolio in the DRC, but that is likely to stay fairly stable, I think. So it's more through uh, mergers and acquisitions and a partnership um, in terms of stability that we're going to see China-DRC relations going. That would be my uh, guess. And just a little footnote, uh, you're talking about the UN relationship, which is very important. Back in July, DRC was one of the signatories that praised and supported China's actions in Xinjiang. And I think that's one of those instances where the DRC said, you know, we don't have any stake in what's going on in Xinjiang. If the Chinese support us on, say, lifting the arms embargo or representing us at the UN in, 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 in a more strong, forceful voice, we will support you against the United States and Europe and their criticisms of the Chinese in Xinjiang. So the DRC was, in fact, one of the signatories of those letters. So that's just really interesting how those politics are playing out. The article is China-Powered African Agency and Its Limits, the Case of the DRC, 2007 to 2019. You can find it over on Cobus's employer's website at SIA. At, that's the South African Institute of International Affairs. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Johanna, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Are you, are you on social media? Because early on you weren't, but I think you were. Are you on uh, on Facebook or Twitter where people can find you? I was a late comer to Twitter, but there I am, Dr. J Malm, D-R-J-M-A-L-M. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me on Twitter. I was a decade later than you, but you know, there I am. Yes, it was a little bit later, but you're, you're finally there. Uh, Dr. Mom is an independent researcher and member of the Stockholm Observatory for Global China and one of the world's leading scholars on China-DRC relations, who's been following this for more than a decade. Uh, and again, we're just so grateful that you took time out of your very busy schedule to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Kobus, it's great to have Johanna back on the show again because it anchors us in the history of the China-Africa engagement story. And going back to 2007's for that Sikkimins deal, that was the original big resource deal that the Chinese did in Africa. And it's interesting because so much of what happened back in 2007 seems to have kind of stayed with the China-Africa relationship. You are working on a book right now about narratives. And it's very interesting because I think the narratives that that were established in 07 around Sikkimins were picked up by then former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. She talked about the exploitive nature of Chinese predatory lending. She started that back already then. Uh, the tension with the IMF. And those narratives are very much consistent and present today, even though the reality doesn't always support the facts on the ground. Yeah, it's it's, and I think, but the DRC occupies a particularly like important position in relation to that because it is also the site of these, these real kind of hor hor like very horrific kind of um, like uh, crimes under Belgian colonialism. Um, so, and 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 the, it's not only that they were horrific, which they were, like even on the level of of European kind of colonialism in Africa, they were particularly horrific, but also they were quite recent. Like where they they were only they were they extended into the twentieth century. 
country. Um, so, like, there is this kind of aspect to the DRC where it it, it is, is this kind of site of like of a particular kind of difficult relationship with the West, not you know through colonialism and then through the Cold War as well. You know, obviously, whether with the CIA and the Belgians were very involved in, in in the DRC. So there is this kind of like historical resonance about China, China kind of like stepping into this role and like creating this this relationship with the DRC and then the DRC using China, you know, as a way to play off played off against you know western actors like the imf you know it's it, it all it adds a kind of a a kind of a resonance a narrative resonance to to the relationship that makes it symbolic in the rest of the world beyond its its particular kind of economic size i found it fascinating that she said that the chinese diplomatic presence in kinshasa is very low key and that reminds me i i used to live in kinshasa 10 years ago in fact uh, to to now 10 years ago january wow time goes by really fast and I remember I was working with the U.S. State Department at the time on a media project, and I was hanging out with some U.S. embassy officials, and they said, well, there's a weekly donor's lunch that, that the donor countries go to. And so I just curiously asked, I said, are the Chinese invited to that? They said, oh, no, 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 no. This is only OECD members. And it was very interesting how they had these, these lines where the, it was the basically the white countries and then it was the Chinese on the outside. And there was a lot of suspicion just at the operational diplomatic level of mid-level diplomats between the Chinese and, say, the U.S. European uh, teams that were on the ground. And so I wonder if the fact that the Chinese are taking such a low profile in Kinshasa today is both because it's a strategy of the Chinese to, to, to kind of fly under the radar, but also because maybe they're not welcomed that much by the some of the traditional lenders and traditional donors. That is probably certainly the case today in with the U.S. in, in Kinshasa. And the U.S., by the way, has an enormous presence in, in, in Congo, just an absolutely huge presence. The aid business is big there, the embassy presence, the DOD is there, the CIA is there. I mean, you name it, everybody's there. And, and so I, I, I'm interested to hear your take on whether or not you think, and again, you have no experience there, but this idea that the Chinese were seen as outsiders. And I wonder if they still feel themselves to be outsiders. Yeah, so it's a very interesting question. You know, and it'll be very interesting to hear what what their perspective is on it. Um, I think, you know, I, I I I would guess that that um, and this really is only a guess is is that it might also have to do with the fact that the Congo that the that the DR Congo is just a very complicated place to do business in generally. You know, um, and that that they might find because the Sikkimin deal was so controversial that they might find being very under the radar as just a more convenient way of doing business there um you know but but yeah you know kind of it's 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 such a it's such an interesting question because you know the the thing is you know one one thing one has to keep in mind is that the DR Congo is so huge that it has you know it, it has numerous countries on its borders and when when the real kind of the, when when things were extremely bad in the DR Congo um you know kind of during the civil war that affected the entire continent like you know kind of we had fallout in South Africa because of that war, and it affects effect, it affects north, south, east, west. It, you know, kind of so whichever way the Congo goes, Africa goes, um, and so that makes it both really important to to kind of keep a tab on, but at the same time very complicated to handle. I think. Yeah, a few other points on China DRC relations that we didn't talk about, but if this is a topic that you are interested, you may want to look into. 
Uh, Cobus, we've talked about the Inga 3 Dam. This is uh, the world's largest hydroelectric dam if it is ever to be built. It's an enormous project on the Congo River. Uh, they've been talking about this for a decade. It's this enormous dream, but the Chinese would be major contractors in that dam if it was to be built. Also, the DR Congo is one of the destinations for Chinese peacekeepers under UN command. Very, very large presence of Chinese, uh, mostly engineering and support personnel, no combat troops that are there, but it's been a major, major destination. And again, let's talk about these minerals. And in so many ways, we've talked about how Africa's commodities are becoming less and less important to China as it's diversifying its sourcing. So for example, oil buying is moving to the Persian Gulf. All of these other resources, the oil, minerals, and timber that the Chinese have been buying from Africa, they're buying more from South America, here in Southeast Asia, and so forth. But Congo in so many ways represents the exception because you simply cannot buy the cobalt in the quantities anywhere else in the world. And that's why the DRC will continue to be very important. And last but not least, don't forget the importance of those UN votes. Just as we talked about at the end of our discussion with Johanna, that the, the Congolese signed on for the, 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 the Chinese letter in support of their policies in Xinjiang is very important. And I think in so many ways it does represent the stability and the strength in the relationship. And you were reminded of this relationship when you just drive through Kinshasa there was a program back in 2010 when I lived there called the Cinq Chantiers. There was the five construction projects. So the Boulevard Trente Juin, the, the main strip that goes down, that was uh, built by the Chinese. The Stade des Martyrs who is the big stadium uh, where the rumble in the jungle was. Uh, that was built by the Chinese. Now there's a new arts and culture center that is being uh, built by the Chinese. And, of course, refurbishing the foreign ministry that will also be done uh, by the Chinese. So you can feel the presence of the Chinese in the Congolese capital in many respects in that sense. But then again, Kobus, to your point about the stability of the Congo, one of the, 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 the sentiments from a lot of Congolese officials that I met when I was there is that their perception was, I don't know if this is a reality, but that the neighboring countries of the Congo never want it to be strong. They want Congo to be weak. Because if Congo really ever lived up to its potential, if the DRC was ever to be fully realized in its potential with the amount of wealth that it has and the amazing culture that it has, I mean, it is the center of, of in my view, I'm very biased that I love Congolese music, I love Congolese food, but in so many ways, it's a cultural center and it, is, it could be an economic powerhouse. It could be a trading powerhouse. It has access to the sea. It has resources more than you can possibly imagine. Uh, that would be very intimidating and very scary for many of its neighbors, namely Rwanda. And so there's not been always the kindest neighbors in, in, in the DRC. Now, again, there's a lot of history and a lot of analysis on that, but it is something to think about. Yeah, you know, uh, the th the thing is you you know the, the the Congo could be unimaginably rich, but it's a, it's it's emblematic of this particular African situation of of a country that could be incredibly rich and yet is incredibly poor. Um, you know, that that kind of particular kind of African tragedy, Congo is number one example of that. Yeah, and it's been so poorly governed. I mean, Kabila was just you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, it was just, you know, to me watching what Kabila did. And again, they don't, these are leaders that like going back to Mobutu Sese Seko, these are leaders that don't have their people at the foremost of their priority list. 
and they have their own self-interest. I mean, the billions and billions and billions of dollars that leave the Congo every year is just tragic, considering the need uh, of the people there. And interesting, back in 2010, Kinshasa is a city that's a very gray city. The buildings are not you know, up to date. They're not very modern. That's changed a little bit now. I've seen some videos and some pictures. But back then, the only building in downtown Kinshasa, from my recollection, that was sparkling and new and beautiful was the Citibank building. And that kind of said a lot, you know, that getting that money out of the out of the Congo was very, very important to them. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. If you like the discussion that we had today with Johanna, a lot of the topics that we raised in this, this is the kind of day to day coverage on these cobalt deals, on all the, the, the U.N. letters kind of things that get missed in the mainstream press. But that's the kind of thing that we do deep dive analysis every day in our newsletter. We'd love for you to become a subscriber to the newsletter. Letter. It starts at $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. There's discounts for annual subscriptions. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscription. This is what Cobus and I, or me mostly, do uh, with my entire day. I get up at 6 in the morning and I go until about 6 or 7 at night putting to this newsletter together. And I uh, would love for you to join uh, hundreds and hundreds of readers. We're very excited. We're closing in on 700 readers around the world, many in government, in investment banks and whatnot who are, who are subscribing to this. And we're just so proud of, uh, of growing this, this small but very interesting readership that we have on this newsletter. So we'd love for you to join that. And of course, if you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to reach out to Kobus or I. You can find me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com and Kobus, C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. So until next week, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. 